Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Owen Hinchy, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Tynes. And we're going to be talking about how security tasks can be automated in a fairly simple and um, apparently a codeless manner. But before we do that, let's uh, let's welcome Owen. Owen, how are you today? Mark, how are you? It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. I, we were just talking be, before we hit the record button that uh, for me, I'm just getting going at seven in the morning here. And for you, it's uh, what time is it? It's at 3 p.m. here in Dublin in Ireland on a particularly bright, sunny, blue sky day. So uh, so all's well here. What's the weather like for you, man? Uh, it's we we're, I'm in Seattle and our weather is, is as probably typically Irish. <laughs> it's uh, it's cloudy, rainy, dark. I mean, we wake up in the dark. We go to bed in the dark. It's just uh, but it, yeah, we have about like yeah. um, six weeks of nice weather if you come here in August and that's about it. But um, I- Funnily enough, I used to I used to when I when I worked for my previous company, I had a team that reported to me out in in Seattle. So I spent a mm-hmm. bunch of time in Seattle, like maybe every once every eight weeks I was in Seattle, and I was always struck by how similar it was to Dublin uh, in, mm-hmm. in Ireland. Funnily enough, both in terms of weather, but also in terms of like just the the culture people had, the attitudes people had to work life balance. Uh, it was it was always a city that I felt. Um, unusually home in despite the fact that it was the complete other side of the world that's uh that that's very interesting so so um were you in seattle or bellevue um so i was in seattle downtown seattle so the okay. company i was working for was called docusign who oh, yeah, had a yeah docusign so we had we had a big office um right there by um by pike market yeah yeah oh, yeah um yeah. and uh, it was a great place, man. We've, we've actually got a couple of customers in Bellevue, though. So I have spent some time in Bellevue as well. Um, and yeah, but both both really great places. And I'm, I'm sorry I don't get to go spend as much time out there, both because of the pandemic, but also just because, like, you know, we're headquartered here in Dublin. Sure. Well, and I asked Bellevue because, you know, typically people come in for Microsoft. And they are the, you know, mm. we got Microsoft over here and, and Amazon downtown. But then, there, of course, there's a bunch of others, DocuSign being one of them. One more question uh, kind of off topic before we jump into um, yeah. the, the topic of the day. You mentioned the cultural similarities. Um, can you expand on that a bit? Oh, totally. So one, one of the things um, that I thought was very similar to uh, Dublin and Seattle was this kind of like, post-work um pub scene so this idea that like <laughs> hey you know we, we, we've all finished work it's like 6 p.m we've worked really really hard let's go and have a couple of drinks or let's go grab a meal before we like head home to our families um, and that doesn't exist in like every city you go to right it's it's it, it's particularly pronounced i think in dublin and in seattle and the amount of choice that you know somebody has when they're engaged in that kind of like post-work activity is awe-inspiring in Seattle, right? There's just so many different restaurants, so many different pubs, so many great places to, to see. And it's all at a like a pretty high standard, right? There's there's very few places I've been to, at least in, in my experience. We should we places. should we should be taping this and sending it over to the uh, the Chamber of Commerce here in Seattle. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. All like, of a sudden, like a moonlight, the, the moonlight influx, as a spokesperson for Seattle's exactly, tourism board. Of uh, Irish tourists just just skyrockets. <laughs> Um, no, I have to agree with you. It's it's funny because I've I've lived overseas off and on for more than twenty years, traveled to many places, mm. and 
And, you know, like places like Japan, it, everybody stops off someplace on the way home because they don't want to go home <laughs> to their yeah. little hovel. But, um, the, uh, but uh, you know, I worked for a Swiss company for four years and it was interesting because, um, you know, I, I was my first time there. I was there for two weeks and I, every day after work, I'd be like, OK, so wh where's everybody going? And they're like, home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can you do that? No, but that's 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 pretty cool. Uh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed your time here. Hey, um, so so tell us. You know, I, I guess we can kind of talk about what Tynes does, um, but yeah. we, we can do that in, in parallel with just talking a little bit about, um, you know, what you're doing and the problems that mm. you solved. But I, 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 I read through, you know, some of the um, your bio and some of the work you've done. And, and one of the questions or excuse me, comments that you've made is that um, a lot of security tasks are highly repetitive. OK. So let's yes. let's start with there, and then we'll we'll kind of come back in to talk about how Tynes addresses that. Give me give an example of how these tasks are highly repetitive. Really, really great question. Um, so I, I'll start by saying before I founded Tynes, I spent 15 years as a security practitioner, right? So primarily in technical roles like incident response, security operations, security engineering, uh, forensics, malware, compliance, appsec, you name it. Um, so. I'm, I'm speaking about this as, as, as a, from a point of experience rather than just kind of like a, a, a marketer looking in. Um, so when, when I was a security practitioner, um, my job was to detect, prevent, and respond to cyber attacks against the organizations I was tasked with defending. And that included companies like eBay, PayPal, and as I said, DocuSign. Um, when we examined the work that we were doing, like forensically, took two steps back and said like, okay, well, what is the work we're doing and how is it helping the company? We found that about 80% of my team's time was spent doing something they'd already done that day. And that is generally, or was generally um, fairly typical security operations tasks. Like for example, responding to phishing emails or running down EDR alerts or triaging bug bounty reports or validating bone scans, all that type of work. Uh, and so when you, when you look at how a security team operates today, security operations team specifically, or you know, an incident response team or something like that, largely the way they operate is they have a number of different technologies deployed around their environment, right? And that can be anything from antivirus on endpoints, EDR on servers, uh, WAFs on the edge, um, IDS on, uh, on, on uh, network VLANs, whatever it is. And those tools are all configured to detect malicious behavior or suspicious behavior in some way, shape or form. Those alerts will generally be sent to some centralized location, right? It could be a SIM, it could be a case management system, it could be Slack, it could be anywhere. And then there's a team of people or you know, a person or somebody's responsibility is to investigate those events, those mm -hmm. alerts coming from this disparate technology and make a decision on whether or not that alert is legitimate, whether it's a false positive, and ultimately decide whether or not some sort of remediation work needs to be required. So in the case of an EDR alert, that could be something like, yeah, this is malicious. So I need to quarantine the device. Uh, I need to create a ticket for IT for the machine to be re-imaged. I need to investigate what other machines are infected, et cetera, et cetera. But the way teams get to a point or the way individuals get to a point of being able to say, yes, I can say with confidence, this is a real threat or no, this is a false positive I can ignore is the alert goes through some sort of manual enrichment process. 
Mm-hmm. And what that means is the alert comes in with a small piece of context. So again, to use the example of EDR, it could be something like, you know, this we detected a file on an endpoint and here's the hash, which we know exists on VirusTotal, right? So what the analyst then needs to do or the security team needs to do is add some additional color to that um, to that alert, as in, okay, well, how many times has it been seen on VirusTotal? And what do the comments on VirusTotal say? And also, have we seen this um, piece of malware before in our environment? And also, is that user on holidays? And what role does that user have? Uh, and how can I contact their manager? And is this a duplicate? So there's these like long, long, long list of steps that need to be performed, primarily manually, in order to get to a point where the analyst can say with confidence, no, nope, this is false positive, it can be ignored, or yes, this is a threat. And so that's just one example, right? That's the EDR alerts. But you can take any type of alert from a security team's environment and kind of apply the same sort of process, right? Alert comes in, it lacks context, a manual process needs to be performed to find that context, and then a decision needs to be made, and then some remediation needs to be taken as well, which is also primarily um, uh, manual. Okay, um, and 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 so what you're, I guess, tasked to do as a, a, you know, if you're in a security role like that is you've got that signal and and you've got to go through all these steps to determine what the, what the actual next step is. Do I need to act on this? Okay. So yep. um, how do you, I mean, it sounds like the, the, that you pretty much have to go through those steps. And I, I know that you're probably going to say there's a way to automate it, but how, yep. how can you do that? I mean, I obviously um, you could set, um, uh, tolerances on certain things. If 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 you know if X plus Y equals this, then we're going to enact this policy, etc. But tell me how how you're dealing with it. Yeah. So even 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 before that, like the, there's probably an argument to be made. Do we have to automate this, right? Like how, okay. how many alerts are we talking about? Like is it one a day? Because if it's one a day, that's all right. We can handle that manually. If it's two a day, okay, we can probably handle that manually as well. Um, but like 79% of security teams are overwhelmed by the number of alerts or events that they receive, right? So straight away, you have to do something, right? We have to figure out some way to reduce the burden on these teams. Um, the way you traditionally do uh, something like this, even outside of security, right? Like let's say there's some manual process that needs to be automated. A lot of times the way you do it is you write custom software. Right. So mm-hmm. you hire a software engineer to come in and write you a script or a piece of code that will talk to these various tools, collect the context from them, and ultimately make a decision on what needs to be done and when. Uh, the challenge is that most security teams do not possess the kind of software engineering skills required to build that custom software. Right, It, it just doesn't exist. Um, engineering resources, software engineering resources are the scarcest resource in enterprises today, bar none, right? There's no resource that's as scarce in an enterprise than software engineering. And companies that do have software engineering resources, they're kind of reluctant to dedicate the cycles required to go and automate some manual security process. And let's be honest, you know, the way things are changing so quickly in security and the way new uh, technologies and tools are being deployed, even if you do write a piece of software that solves the problem today, it's going to get out of date really, really quickly. 
right? It's because something will change. There'll be a new technology. There'll be a new threat. There'll be a new type of malware. There'll be a new TTP being leveraged by, you know, a state actor or whatever it is. Uh, and so the custom software piece isn't really an option for most security teams. And so that leaves you with like, okay, well, how can we achieve the outcomes of custom software without having to use software engineers, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that's, the, that's the real question. And so when we started to look at this problem in times, what we were trying to build was a platform, a solution that would allow people who didn't know how to write code, automate their repetitive manual tasks, regardless of technology case, um, uh, objective or complexity, right? That's what we were trying to build. So a tool that would allow frontline practitioners, people that knew their jobs inside out, um, give them the tools that they needed to automate their own repetitive workloads. Because from our experience, and I'm sure you've probably seen the same throughout your career, automation is only effective. And I mean only effective when it's implemented by people on the front line, right? It's got to be the people doing the work day in, day out, who are empowered with the tools they need to automate their workflows end to end. That's when the magic actually happens. And so what we've done with Times is essentially build a platform that does just that. Right. We built this tool that allows people who don't have software engineering backgrounds, who don't know how to write code, we've given them the tools and the platform that they need to automate their own workflows any way they want to do it. So walk me through, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about the underlying technology yeah. in a second, but walk me through the user case of this, um, the, you know, this security engineer who's faced with all this signal and they have to go through all these repetitive tasks all day long. And now Tynes is an option for them. And, but you know, they're not coders. They're, they just want to kind of set this up in a, in a super easy way. How do they do it? What's the, what's the process? As in how does someone get started with Tynes? Yeah, I mean, like, so I'm I'm the guy, and I again, yeah. I'm not I'm not a developer because those are the super, you know, I'm a security engineer, and I just need to automate this. I'm on the front lines. Now I've got times as you know. So so what what does it look like for me? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, so philosophically speaking, um, when we founded the company, you know, we we were had been security practitioners, and so one of the things we really wanted to do when we were building this company was be the security vendor that we wished we could have worked with when we were practitioners, right? We've all worked with like um, tasteless security vendors who would, who have opaque pricing, make it really difficult to get started on their product, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we really wanted to be that, that kind of practitioner fo focused security vendor. Uh, and so the way you get started with Tynes is really, really easy. So we provide a free version of the product that anybody can use. You just sign up with your email address. It takes about 10 seconds to get started with Tynes and you have access to the platform. No credit cards required, no need to talk to a sales team, no need to sign your life away. You just get started. It's really easy to try out the product and it's a fully featured version of the tool that allows you automated a handful of use cases, allow you to get started and try out the product and so on. So as an analyst, you sign up for the product at times.com and you're essentially brought to a platform that looks and feels very familiar if you've used tools like Visio or other whiteboarding applications like Miro or OmniGraffle or something like that. The way Times works is you drag and drop these uh, what we call action types and you connect them together. 
right? So let's say the process that you have is to receive phishing emails, analyze the attachments and create a ticket in JIRA, right? Something really simple and kind of straw man like that. What you would do is you would drag one of these building blocks onto what we call the storyboard. It's the canvas. You would drop it in and you configure it and that would receive the emails. The next thing you would do then is drag in the next building block, which would be something like um, pull out the attachments. Just lost you. Okay. Hear me, Mark? Uh, there we are. You're back. You said something about attachments. Pull in the attachments. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So you, you would drag the attachments or the building block onto the, uh, onto the canvas, connect that up to analyze the attachments. And then for the final step, you would drag on another building block uh, configure to create a ticket in JIRA and you would connect them together. So it's this kind of like very visual drag and drop interface that allows you to start small, get a couple of things working and then slowly iterate, make your uh, process more complex and more real world over time. But the actual, um, the way you interact with the platform is there's no code required. You literally just drag these things and you can visualize your, uh, visualize your process in a really, really simple, straightforward way. Okay, so I, I I get that now. So you're 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 saying, hey, here's my typical process. Instead of me taking this email and copying it into a ticketing system and, and, and so on, it's just going to automatically flow there. Um, Correct. But th but then in terms of the, I guess the recommended you know action step, go no go, um, or yeah. investigate further. Are you able to build that into the automation as well, so that you know if, if it's if it, if the signal hits seventy percent pro uh, probable, then we're going to go one more level. But if not, we we call it a false positive. I mean, how does that all play in? Uh, absolutely. So if what if you think about what we've done, our great innovation, right? What we wanted to do was build this platform that would allow anyone automate any process. And those processes can be extraordinarily complex, right? They can go to like 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 individual steps. It can wow. have like multitudes of decisions. Uh, it can involve like logic right across the board. What we needed to do was figure out a way to build this platform that would allow people construct those workflows that were exceptionally complicated, handle all kinds of gnarly edge cases, talk to a million different technologies. But we also knew we had to make it extremely simple to use, right? Really, really simple so that anybody, literally anybody could use this product. And so we had to come up with a very different approach to, way, to the way automation platforms work in general, not just SOAR platforms. And so what we started to do when we first founded the company and we're trying to figure out how to build this tool was we went to all our friends and we said, hey, tell me about your workflows. And so we collected um, you know, documents from Confluence that described vulnerability management. We captured um, uh, images of whiteboards that showed how companies do employee onboarding. We captured like voice notes of people telling us how they do um, bug bounty, right? So we collected 500 of these workflows when we were getting started. And what we did was we broke those workflows, um, regardless of the complexity, regardless of the use case, into their individual steps, right? So when you think about a process, it's really just a long series of steps, a series of actions, right? Receive email, analyze attachments, create tickets. It's just these series of actions. Our bet was that there was a lowest common denominator of actions that we would need to be able to support, right? There had to be a defined set of things that we would need to be able to support in order to be able to automate anything, right? 
And so when we collected all these individual workflows and we broke them into their individual steps, we started looking for recurring actions, right? So what we were able to do was we were able to say, oh, it's really common to need to be able to read an email, or it's really common to need to be able to talk to some external tool, or in your case, it's really common to need to be able to make a decision. And that decision can be, oh, the probability that this is a high severity is 70, or it can be something like this person is a VP, or it can be something like today's a Tuesday, right? Some sort of decision. What we discovered was there's actually only seven types of actions that we needed to be able to support to automate any process, any process. So the way times works is you decide what you want to automate and you build it using just these seven action types, these seven primitives. So once you know how to configure these seven primitives, you can automate any process start to finish. Doesn't matter the technology, doesn't matter the use case, doesn't matter the complexity. It's always just these seven things configured in slightly different ways. What that means is we can tell our customers, look, once you know how to configure these seven things, you're essentially as effective as a senior software engineer, right? You will be able to move faster than a senior software engineer. You'll be able to build technology that's as robust and redundant as that built by a senior software engineer. And because we take care of all the messiness like version control, security, credential management, scalability, et cetera, all your end users need to know is how to configure these seven things. And one of those seven things, those seven primitives is specifically designed just for making decisions. And so anytime you need to make a decision based on information that's been collected before or on an alert coming in, you just drag that building block the decision-making building block onto your process and connect it into wherever you need the decision to be. And then that decision-making uh, building block, I, I'm assuming it has different settings or different options, different kind of, you can say, like you said, if it's a Tuesday, if this person's a VP, yep. if they are accessing, if there's some type of anomalous behavior that you want to flag or something like that, that uh, the, the logic will allow you to dictate what the next step in the automation chain would be. Absolutely right. You got it. Whew, got it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so can you give me an example? Um, because I, I, I really think that I mean, what you're what you're describing sounds super cool, helpful, needed, much, very much needed. Uh, but I, I also think that the the final step in the reme the remediation process, you know, oftentimes it, you, it's a judgment call by that security engineer. Because uh, yeah. they look at all the different signal and then they say, but could you just give me an example, could be a simple one, of a automated remediation action. And I'm talking about at the end of the chain, we're, we've gone through all the process and now it's time to actually, hey, we need to get this person's device uh, or, or we need to, you know, take them off the network, whatever it is. Wonderful question. So the, you're right. The remediation is actually where the magic happens. That's how the company gets more secure. That's how the company stays out of like the headlines related to breaches. Uh, and so what Times really does is it talks to your best and breed point solutions. So for example, um, most security teams or the average security team has access to about 75 different tools, right? That's up from 55 two years ago. We've got some customers with over 150 individual technologies. And so the way remediation takes place, it'll actually be performed by those target tools, those best and breed solutions. Um, at times just instructs that platform what to do. So to give you an example, let's say you receive an alert from some, like a tool like Lacework, right? Which is configured to monitor all your cloud assets. 
and Lacework determines, hey, we've discovered that an S3 bucket is open to the internet. That alert would go to Times. Times would find out a bunch of information related to the alert, whether it's from Okta or AWS itself. And eventually you would have enough context to be able to say, okay, in the event that all these checks have passed and there's no, um, there's no situation where this is not a serious security incident, um, I'm going to tell the AWS API to restrict access to that bucket. So I'm going to flip that bucket from public to private. So that's like a really, really common one we see our customers do. Another really common would be could, so, could be something like we detect ransomware in an endpoint. Right, mm -hmm. so an, an EDR tool has flagged a suspicious binary or something like that. Times will go through all the steps to determine that, yeah, you know what, this is actually really bad. And Times works at wire speed, so it's going to do these steps really, really quickly. And then it's going to instruct Sentinel-1, you know, cut this machine off from the internet. Don't let it propagate. Don't let any data be exfiltrated. That's pretty cool. Hey, so yeah. um, so so how how on uh, you know if we look under the hood a little bit, how can Tynes um, interact with up to a hundred different uh, tools and applications that your your customers already using? Yeah, great question. So, um, this actually gets to one of our most important differentiators, but as a product, but also as a company, right? We we think that security. In fact, we know that security teams are dealing with the most fractured stack. Um, of any team in the enterprise, right? An average of 75 tools. Um, if you think about these tools, like automation tools in general, what they do is they take data from one place, manipulate it in some way and put it somewhere else, right? I'm not doing us, doing us a disservice by saying that, but that's really what we're doing. And as a result, these tools like Times really live and die on their ability to interact with external tools. The way every other platform works today, everyone, not just security automation platforms, is that in order to talk to external tools, they rely on pre-built integrations. You can call it an integration, a module, a plugin, whatever. It's some part of the product that the vendor builds to allow you to talk to external tools. So that could be, for example, an integration for Splunk an integration for CrowdStrike, an integration for Nessus. It doesn't really matter. It's something that's pre-built. The problem with that model is that by design, you are restricted to what you can automate interaction with by the apps, plugins, modules, integrations that your platform of choice um, provides. And you need this, to keep those those plugins updated and... <laughs> absolutely, right. Updated, patched, bug-free. Yeah. And as a result, you know, there's often a backlog, right? So you're, you are bottlenecked by your automation vendor, which should never be the case. And we knew we didn't never want it to get into a position where we would be a constraint to people using our platform. And so the way we've approached it is in a very, very different way. So instead of relying on this idea of pre-built integrations, we provide a really easy user-friendly way to talk to any tool that has an API. So one of the seven building blocks in Times is specifically designed just for talking to APIs, right? So it doesn't matter if it's a commercial off-the-shelf tool like Splunk. It doesn't matter if it's something you built yourself. It doesn't even matter if it's a security tool. Times treats it in a consistent way out of the box. What that means is our end users are never restricted to what they can automate interaction with by times. 
the second they go and buy a new platform, if it has an API, and it can be REST, SOAP, GraphQL, whatever, Times will work with it out of the box in a consistent way. And so, you know, often our customers will ask us, hey, do you integrate with tool XYZ? And we'll be like, does it have an API? Because if it does, then yes, absolutely. And instead of us spending all our engineering resources building these apps that are already out of date the second we ship them, what we do is work on improving the ergonomics of this single um, building block, making it more powerful, more robust, easier to discover APIs and so on. So if, I, if I'm using your, your API um, building block, I forget you said there's seven, seven uh, yes. I, what, what was the phrase you used? Seven uh, core ac action types. Action types, and one of them involves, I guess, using the API to talk to these other apps. Um, what's described to me that process, um, you know, because I'm a security engineer again, I'm a coder, I, I just want to get this up and running. How does that work? Great question. So the way the way it would work is you need to configure the building block in time, the action type in times to talk to your target tool. So what you would do is you would enter the URL for that target tool. And that could be something like jira.atlassian.net or api.crowdstrike.com, whatever it is. And then you would configure your authentication. So you would say, this is the, my API key for that service, or this is my username and password for that service. And, and then you would just send the data that you need to send to that tool, right? So if it's, um, if it's a request to quarantine a device in CrowdStrike, you would send the host ID to the CrowdStrike API. Lost you again. Ability. Oh, sorry, Mark, gone again? No, 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 you said, okay, uh, CrowdStrike API. Yeah, so you can talk directly to the CrowdStrike API. Now, the benefit of this is that, obviously, the flexibility that you have, the number of tools you can talk to. The barrier to entry becomes that as a security engineer, you need to have some familiarity with APIs, right? Yeah. So the way we get around that is that we provide what we call pre-built templates. And these templates are pre-configured actions that allow you to talk to, you know, like 250 different security tools in 3,000 different ways. So chances are, if you want to do something that's any way common, like to create a search in Splunk, we actually have a template for that ready to go. So you don't have to worry about looking up the API documentation, et cetera. That is awesome. Hey, um, I, you, you, you've sold me on this idea because I'm not very technical myself. And uh, it yep. sounds like it would be a great tool to use and make my life a heck of a lot easier. Um, let me ask you, let me sw switch uh, tracks yet again here. Tell me a little bit about uh, your business, where it's at, you know, what, you know, what stage you're at and um, your, your plans for expansion and growth. Oh, great question. So we're nearly four years old. So I founded the company in early 2018. Like I said, having spent about 15 years as a security practitioner. And um, we were bootstrapped and self-funded for the first couple of years of our existence, uh, myself and my co-founder. We raised $15 million in VC funding um, from some of the world's best investors in kind of 2019. Um, and we have invested heavily in go-to-market, uh, product development, R&D since then. So today we're nearly 100 people spread across the world, um, kind of split 50-50 between the US and Europe. 
we get to work with some of the world's most incredible security teams, right? Everything from Fortune 5 like McKesson to public and private SaaS companies like MongoDB, GitLab, um, and folks like that, right through to 50 people startups. We also, in that free version of the product I mentioned, the community edition, we've had about 5,000 companies sign up for the free version of our product. Um, we're growing faster than we've ever grown before. So we're about 100 people today. We'll be close to 250 by the end of the year. Um, we think that this market is just getting started. Right? We think we're really in the early innings of the security automation space. Um, we're working with some incredible companies that are doing some incredible things. But our, our mission and our vision remains to be that company we wish we could have worked with, to take a very much a practitioner's approach to the problems that we're solving, and ultimately to make all our customers successful and to continue building a product that our customers love to use. You know, I mean, the companies that you work for um, tend to be on, on the very large size uh, and security operations for large MNCs um, obviously are diff different than from mid-sized companies and then even from SMBs. Um, do you think that you have a sweet spot in terms of the, the, the target company size? Yeah, so we, we definitely have an ideal customer profile and that is mm -hmm. typically kind of like, um, companies of over 500 people that have invested in mostly cloud-first technologies like G Suite, O365, Slack, uh, Lacework, Hunters, CrowdStrike, Panther, etc. etc. They're the companies where we see ourselves having the uh, the best fit. But that's not to say we don't work with other folks, right? We've got a bunch of companies that have like 50 people or less. And uh, we've got a bunch of companies who are using the free version of our product who don't even have a dedicated security team, right? There's one IT person and he's tasked with security. And so he's using or he or she is using the tool to like automate the repetitive parts of their of their jobs. Um, but for the most part, it's kind of like that, that, that technology cloud native company that's like 500 or so employees that have invested in cloud native technologies. You know, that totally makes sense for where I sit because again, larger companies, more resources, uh, smaller companies, you have typically fewer people trying to do everything. And sometimes it's one person doing everything and maybe security is just one part of their job and anything that you can help them, uh, anything you can do to help them automate, make their life easier would, I guess, be greatly appreciated. So, uh, definitely yep. makes sense. Well, Hey, um, Oh, and last question. Um, I'm, sure. I'm looking at your background here. The uh, the audience won't be able to see it, but I, I see I just see nothing but books. Lots and lots of books. Is that a real background, or is that um, <laughs> is that your real background? When, yeah. When, when when you said background, I thought you were I thought you were talking about like my my work history. And oh I was no. Like, what? Lots of, <laughs> yes. lots of books. What are you I found about? some pretty su some some interesting things in your background there. No, no, I'm just talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're referring to that. You're referring to that time by like interned in a library or something. No, this, oh, is, yeah. this, is, my, this is my real background, Mark. As as your listeners will no doubt have gathered, I need all the help I can, like seeming intelligent. So surrounding myself <laughs> in, in books and bookshelves does a good job of that. It's that the power of osmosis. So do you uh, do you have any recommendations? Um, you know, I'm just after finishing an amazing book that I really really enjoyed. It's a novel called um, The Paris Architect. Um, okay. really, really fun novel. It's like the, the premise is that there's this kind of architect in France, in Nazi Germany, and uh, he is a bit of a, a bit of kind of like a self-serving 
very um, very commercially focused guy and doesn't really have a whole lot of empathy for the plight of the Jewish people in like Nazi Germany. But he is tasked with this concept of building hiding places as an architect, building hiding places for rich Jewish people in apartments and houses in France. Uh, and it's just this really interesting a premise, but also kind of like the character development over the course of the novel is really, really interesting. But I, I won't, I won't spoil it for your listeners. No, that I, I, I like new things like that. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. I just, um, I finished a book called the Hail Mary Project, which was written by the same person who wrote The Martian, and oh, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's, it, you know, it's obviously sci-fi, um, and I don't want to give too much away, but he, it, it was a kind of quite unusual, kind of feel-good, funny sci-fi um and so, so like had andy, me, andy weir or something exactly yeah. exactly yeah yeah it had me laughing quite a few times um and oh, so yeah. which is nice because usually with sci-fi it gets it can go deep down a rabbit hole unless you get into something like uh hitchhiker's guide or something like that um but um yeah yeah no this uh, is a good book hey well um Owen, I've uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you, you, you've you've sold me on the concept uh, of, of times 100%. It's definitely cool. needed. The market will appreciate it. And um, I'd like to wish you and the rest of the Tynes team a very successful uh, 2022. Mark, same to you. Keep doing what you're doing, my friend. Talk soon. Cheers. Thanks. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.